Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today is uh, Ken Lipper, who I uh, last saw when he was involved with the third Bush. We'll get to that in a minute. He's an investment banker. He was a deputy mayor. He's an advisor, a professor. He's written three books, busy guy. And he's produced movies, one of which the last days is uh, well. Tell us, tell us about what's new about that, and a little bit about it. Would won an Academy Award, I believe. Yes, it did. It uh, it was it came out in theaters in 1998, and received the Academy Award as best feature length documentary. Uh, it chronicles the final days of World War II and Hitler's decision to not surrender, but to accelerate the war on the Jews, was his quote. And, uh, and he, in 60 days, rounded up 525,000 people in Hungary, uh, and uh, mostly women and children. Uh, the men had already been taken to work labor camps uh, and murdered them uh, in 60 days. And actually, that was uh, one of the most important charges against Eichmann uh, when he was hanged. And, uh, and the thing that struck me about that moment in history was the war was effectively over by Hitler's own admission. Uh, and the Germans were under siege by the Russians in Budapest. And despite their own helplessness, they diverted resources and Many Germans were killed because the Russians took no prisoners. Uh, and, uh, and they focused on killing women and children uh, just because they were Jewish. In the most hideous ways, they shipped them off to concentration camps, of course, but because there was uh, scarce equipment, they drowned people in the Danube by just firing into the crowds that were lined up on the Danube that they marshaled and burned them in churches and ultimately took them on the death marches to freeze in the freezing winter. And, uh, and it was one of the most brutal periods of history and the most unrelated to any political, military, or any other rational objective. It was purely based on hatred and historic anti-Semitism. And the Hungarian population, unfortunately, collaborated with the Germans to make this possible because the Germans didn't have the manpower on its on their own. And today, this is being brought back and it was remastered. Yes, uh, Netflix is uh, contracted to do at least two years uh, on this. They've uh, they're showing it for at least two years and maybe longer. Uh, and Blu-ray uh, is selling it, uh, and the remastered version was necessary in order to make it uh, useful on HDTV 
So what they do is they heighten the visual and they add colorization and heighten the sound. Uh, and, and so it looks much more like a modern film than one that was made in 1998, it's sharper. And, uh, but the horror of the subject in it and the people interviewed, the, the approach that was taken was to have five survivors tell their stories about their earlier life, what happened to them in the concentration camps and what life they made after they survived. And you recognize by the very ordinariness of their lives in a sense, and their devotion to children and, and uh, grandchildren. And, and we have enormous amounts of footage that the Russian archives released to us and the Israeli archives and the German archives uh, and American soldiers provided us upon arrival in Dachau and Auschwitz. Uh, and this footage shows the horror and the contrast of that with the lives that these people constructed and how human they were and how beautiful life is before and after with this unnatural demonic period in between. And it just casts a brutal light on the Nazis and uh, their collaborators. And uh, other films that you've been in, you've produced were, uh, I'm trying to think, one of them was uh, Winter Guest. Yes, that was the film I did with uh, Emma Thompson, uh, and uh, it was about, it was about the fact the winter guest is death, and that it comes every winter to the small Scottish fishing village, and in that story between Emma Thompson and her mother, her actual mother, Philip Law, plays opposite her. She's a wonderful stage actress, and uh, and uh, the story is about how death takes a certain number of people in, the, in during the winter time uh, and you explore what makes one sort of available to death. It, it, the conscious theme of it is one has to be almost ready to die. That death doesn't just arbitrarily seize people. People have to be willing to, to go. And, uh, and so it's a very interesting exploration of, of these two women who are both depressed because they've lost their respective husbands in a town where you can't meet new people because all the men die in fishing accidents and, and are married and how they have to find their own individuality. And uh, it's a wonderful film. And then I wrote the novel Wall Street and worked on the film with Oliver Stone, um, uh, Wall Street, the first Wall Street and uh, Michael Douglas. And, uh, and that was a great experience. And that was basically about greed and uh, how it impacts society. And uh, this kind of, again, sort of, sort of narcissistic character in the Michael Douglas Gordon Gecko, uh, but one who has a philosophy about it, that greed is good and he's carrying out some abstract mission that makes it better for everybody in the long run. So that was a wonderful film. And, uh, and then I did, I wrote the novel and the screenplay for a film called City Hall with Al Pacino and John Cusack. And that theme 
is Al Pacino plays the mayor. And the theme is about uh, when a politician wants to do good things for the public in a, in a democracy, he's making a huge sacrifice and taking uh, great risks because in order to function, he needs the collaboration of others. And the question is how far, if at all, one goes over the line in the pursuit of good outcomes. And, uh, and so in the film, the, the mayor says, you know, there's black and there's white and we live in the gray. And the deputy mayor says, no, there's only black and white. So there's this conflict between getting something done and you're doing it at your own risk because if you do something that turns out to be a disaster, as in this case, a child is killed because he helps influence a judge of a political relate in a situation related to a mafia chieftain to help his nephew get probation, and then the nephew kills a cop and a, and a small child, and it's how the mayor's entire life unravels by this one negative act that he gets looped into. And so it's all about how a politician is always at the edge and the risk involved in making any kind of deal. And then I did The Last Days with Steven Spielberg, which we just discussed at the opening. And, uh, and that's a, an exploration of pure evil. And what, what's it like to the work? inability to not let it start. What's it like to work with Steven uh, Spielberg? Well, it's wonderful. He's a fellow resident of ours in East Hampton. And, on uh, your pond also. Yes, on the same pond. <laughs> And, uh, and, and the first thing about Steven Spielberg is you recognize how he made E.T., which is one of my very favorite films. And the reason is that he still maintains, despite his fame, despite his brilliance, despite his wealth, he still maintains boyish wonder. If you're sitting with Steven and you're talking about any topic, any, something you know about, and he knows little about, he will ask you endless questions, trying to understand it, get to the detail. Uh, he wants to know everything. And he has that wonder that you, I have four children I raised, and I remember when they were young, how they always asked, why is this happening? Why is that, what is that? And, uh, and Stephen still maintains that childish, wonder with the universe and that informs all of his films if you look at his film uh, film uh, his film productions they all have a certain element of the curious the how does this happen why does this happen this is different they're artistic and he has that sense of art in everything he a wants to know everything and he wants everything to be perfect. And he has a great sense of artistic integrity. He's a great man. He really is a great man. In a universe where there are many important people, he's a great one. He's a great person. Talk a little bit about, I mentioned at the very start, the third Bush 
and Jeb Bush how, how I, we last saw one another. At the yes, house. Jeb Bush is a friend of mine. And uh, when he ran for president, uh, he asked for my help. And I was one of his advisors. And, uh, and we had a party out here for about, I, and we had one in New York too, for hundreds of people and uh, to introduce him and to raise some money for him. And, uh, you know, he, he would have been a very good president as he was a very good governor of Florida. He was particularly focused on things like education. And he was a person who focused on doing things, getting, he's a very concrete person. He focuses on how do, he knows how the mechanism works. He knows how you have to influence the bureaucracy in order to get anything done and you have to get there by it. And uh, he, in effect, was the counter Trump. He understood government. He believed in government. He believed it could be an instrument of good and, and uh, you could make it work. And it was a policy driven world. And, uh, and he was tremendously down to earth person like his father. He's a very decent, very decent person. And as a result, he was unable to kind of uh, deal with Trumpy and his hysteria. Tell me a little bit about how you came to East Hampton. And uh, as I mentioned that you're sitting in front of a pond which is connected with Georgica Pond. And you have a wonderful home there. But what brought you out here? Well, I, I was a young partner at Lehman Brothers about 50 years ago. And the, uh, I had my first children. We used to rent in Nantucket. And my ex-wife, to whom I was married 34 years, uh, was, a, was a then a medical school and was a young uh, doctor intern and resident. And we found it impossible to carry out our professional lives and come back and forth to Nantucket when we had small children because of the fog and trying to get there, it was a very long distance. And so we decided to think about where, where we would be best on a permanent basis. And that was uh, the Hamptons. And so we first came out here and we really liked it. We had been, out here a few times as renters, uh, just for a summer. And then I bought a house that Leonard Bernstein owned. Uh, when Felicia died, uh, he felt the house was jinxed, uh, that it was her house and he couldn't stay there anymore. And that's on Jeffrey's Lane, also overlooking Hope Pond and about three acres from here. And uh, so we lived there for about 28 years and in those days a funny story is uh, I argued over $35,000 in buying five and a half acres <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and that's how low the prices were <laughs> in those times I he said I'm not, he, I I'm not going to I'm not going to sell it for a penny less <laughs> so I paid him the extra 35000 and uh you know, and of course, you can't get a doorknob here anymore for that. Uh, but it was it was a wonderful experience being out here. There were many farms out here at the time, and 
there's very little development. And, you know, during my lifetime, it just took off. And, and then I built a house uh, three acres away uh, where Klaus Hoey used to live and uh, the artist. And uh, I took his house as the basic, the footprint. And then I built a new house pretty much around it inside. We kept 51%, uh, which, and we built new 49% in accordance with the town rules not to interfere with the uh, wetlands. So we stuck right to the footprint, right down. And Bob Stern, another East Hampton uh, inhabitant uh, and a longtime friend of ours, uh, Bob was the architect. And I remember one day we had a discussion. They needed three inches that, to go three inches outside of the uh, agreement. And I said, no, we've made an agreement and we're going to stick to it. And uh, you'll figure out how to do this without the extra three inches. And, uh, and so that's the house that you've been in many times. What do you enjoy most about being out here? Well, the solitude, I know that's incongruent with the way it's described in the New York Post and other uh, such publications. Uh, where I live, I'm surrounded by the Hook Pond. On, it goes all around the edge of the property, except for the front. And the front is a private lane. So there are only six other houses on here. And it's still a very rustic lane. So. I, I don't hear a single car uh, from sitting where I'm sitting. It's very rare that I would ever hear a car. And very few cars go up and down the lane because there are few occupants. And uh, so it's really silent. And I cherish the silence here. <laughs> and, uh, and as I say, you'd find no other person making that statement, but that is what I love most about it. And it's beautiful. I mean, the property, as you know, is beautiful. And East Hampton itself, despite a lot of uh, excess development, is still beautiful. It was once voted the most beautiful town in America. The beaches are fantastic. And there are a lot of amazing people out here, like you, Bob Stern, uh, the countless uh, Bob Caro. I mean, all of, all the friends that I hang out with, are all majestic in and of themselves. They're all very serious and dedicated people and doing wonderful things in their own lives. And uh, as far as the other noise, I kind of block it out. And, uh, <laughs> are, are you here permanently now, especially during the pandemic? Yes, I, I, uh, I have a house in Greenwich Village still, and I spend time there, but I'm spending maybe two, time, two days a week in Manhattan and the rest of the time out here. And then during the winter, I go to Santa Monica. I have a place in Santa Monica on the beach, like this, uh, but, but it's an apartment that overlooks the beach. Do you have anything planned uh, for uh, upcoming in, in your career in some level? Well, I'm doing a, a lot of really, uh, I'm very engaged right now, not to bore you with too much detail, but I still spend, say, four hours a day on stock stock market investments. Uh, I start off today doing yoga or fitness training with an instructor. Uh, so I try to keep, and then I walk generally three miles to five miles on the beach at least three times a week. So that's a routine. 
And then I'm working on a new project of writing a book. And I'm doing a lot of interesting work on planning for the next pandemic. The Office of Emergency Preparedness and Readiness uh, in the government has put together, as part of HHS, Health and Human Services, uh, has put together a group of mostly doctors and public health specialists. They invited me on the committee to help advise them on the monetary as money aspects of it, the reimbursement aspects, and the organizational aspects, because I've in the government service, I've stood up some very big programs and I'm familiar with that. So I've been working with this wonderful group of people, all of whom are on Zoom from all over the country. I've only met one uh, who's a wonderful man who's the head of emergency medicine at Mount Sinai and a professor at Icon Medical School at, at Mount Sinai. And, uh, but all of them are like that, like serious, brilliant uh, specialists. And so it's been really intriguing working with them. I've been doing that for about four months now. And uh, we're just handing in our first, uh, what, what will be hopefully be our final, it's our final report that now goes to the government and then it will come back and we'll set up a structure to carry it out to the extent that the government wants to, to implement it. So I'll be involved in that for a long period. And then I'm working uh, with Rand Corporation in California and Rand University on a study on truth decay and setting up an institute at Rand to uh, develop an academic base for trying to reintroduce the discipline and concept of facts in society and how people can discern the difference between fact and lies and, and opinion and fact and try to reintroduce the mental disciplines uh, that are critical for civic society. And so it will focus on how you educate different populations to, to both appreciate and effectuate the desire to learn more about things before they they form conclusions. And that will range from how to improve civic education for young children and how to make them appreciate the importance of fact in a democracy or and in a scientific world as well. And and the all the way to the elderly population, which is most ironically influenced when you read the studies, is most influenced by uh, false information yes. and most susceptible to it. And uh, so we're covering, we're going to cover that whole thing and Rand is going to set up an institute and I've been working with them on this for, that's, that's for a year to we're study this. kind of running out of time and so I want to thank you for being on this podcast and uh, it's good to see you again. I'm talking. It's great to see you too and we'll get together and give my love to Chris. I shall. And I'm talking to Ken Liver. Again, thanks for coming. Thank you. Bye. Bye.